Reading from scripture this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, said to, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when the company the pro- and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head of them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he also went to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he he too stripped off his clothes, and he prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all day and all the night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Um, Before we start praying, I just want to make a quick announcement because I don't like making announcements in a prayer. Uh, We just found out that Katie Crawford's mom has been diagnosed with cancer. We don't have a bunch of uh, details about it, but I want to pray for them. So um, let's go ahead and pray now. 
Um, Lord, you are good always, as we sang. And when darkness shows, Lord, you're holding on to us and you're with us. And so, Lord, we pray for uh, Katie and her family as they're dealing with mom's cancer. Um, this is a great darkness that's come to them. But, Lord, it's, it's providential that you had Katie and Chris move back before this happened. And this was what they had said. This was what they wanted to do was be there for their parents. And so, Lord, thank you for the mercy of letting them go before this happened so they could be established in place and be there to help their mom. And Lord, we pray for her. We pray for Katie's mom that, Lord, would you bring miraculous healing, just startling healing that, that can't be explained. And Lord, if that's not what's best and most perfect, then we pray for her family, for Katie's mom, for Katie, for everyone involved. Lord, that they would see your mercy and your grace through the cancer diagnosis and, uh, and all through the process. But Lord, we do pray and we ask for healing for them. Have mercy um, and, uh, and give them strength, we ask. Lord, also just thinking about the things that are going on in the world right now, and, and there's so many voices yelling scary and, and um, wrong things. And Lord, your church can be very easily caught up into the fear and the anxiety of what's going on around us. Uh, Father, I pray for your church throughout America, especially, but really through the world, but especially here in America. Lord, would you fill your church, your people, with a sense that Jesus is in control, that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, he is sitting at the right hand of glory in heaven, and that uh, he must reign until all of his enemies are destroyed. And Lord, that our hope is in Jesus Christ's reign and not who's gonna occupy the White House or what the next policy decision is or which social media platform ascends or descends, none of that, Lord, those things are transitory. Help us to put our hope cause us to put our hope in Jesus Christ and his reign. And Lord, to that end, would you use your message this morning, your word, uh, you've promised that it does not go out void, that it will return after it's accomplished its purpose. So Holy Spirit, would you accomplish your purpose in us this morning and fill us with hope because we've seen what you have to say in the story of David. And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so this is a bit of a tangential thing, but it does fit back in. I promise we'll come back to this a couple of weeks ago. Within the last week or two, I rewatched the movie Cloverfield. It's from 2007. It's an older film. Um, it's one of those found film movies. It's like they found a camera and they just show the, the film that's in it. Um, it, it's, uh, it starts out with Jason and Beth are in New York City in her father's you know, 2034 apartment overlooking uh, Central Park in Manhattan. And it's just their time together. And one of the things I noticed is as the camera's moving around and they're filming each other and talking, um, you get a really clear shot of the, the uh, clock. And the clock says 6.42 a.m. Now, the, I'm, this time when I watched it, I went, I'm paying attention to that. That means something. And so what happens is the film kind of shows them then going to Coney Island and just their relationship and aren't they cute? And, and you just love them and you know, they're, they're sweet. And then the film cuts and it picks up again and it's Jason's going away party. He's been promoted to vice president and he's moving to Japan. And so they're going around and talking to everybody at the party and wishing him well and Beth isn't there. And when she does show up, she's got somebody else with her. And so Jason and Beth argue and she leaves. And a couple of minutes later, there's an explosion in Manhattan. Something's, something's happening. And pretty soon there's a giant monster storming through Manhattan. And you figure, oh, well, this is a monster movie. Well, it's not. It's more than a monster movie. The monster is incidental. You hardly ever see the monster. He's just this constant threat. The story is 
Jason gets a phone call from Beth. She's injured. She's in her apartment. She can't move. And so while everybody is running away from the danger, Jason and his friends run toward it. He's going to go rescue his love. And the way the film finally ends is it's Jason and Beth alone again with the camera in Central Park. And they, they had confessed their love for each other and they, they're together and, and whatever happens. And then there's a large explosion and the camera cuts off and you, you don't know what happened. Guess what time was on the camera before it cut off? 6.42 a.m. One of these things that we tend to do in movies, but it's, it's older than that, but it happens in movies, is you'll see the scene at the beginning of the movie and it's easy to forget it because it doesn't seem to really have anything to do with what's going on. It just kind of establishes things. What will often happen is that will come back and be really important later on, but you, it's not like instrumental to the film, but it, it is setting the stage. It's foreshadowing what's going to happen. And, and that's what was going on in Cloverfield is that, that image of Beth and Jason in love in Manhattan overlooking the uh, Central Park foreshadowed what the end of the movie would be. It, it kind of sets it up. Now, why do we do that? Why, why on earth do we do stories like that? Now, you watch any movie, pay attention to that first scene and see if it doesn't come up later on. Why do we do that? Well, because human beings are basically storytellers. We, we love to tell stories. Um, if you look in the most ancient caves, what you'll see is stories of great hunts painted on the walls. We're, we love to tell these stories again, these, these epic stories. Um, and when we do, what we're doing is we're doing what we were created to be like. Right? We were created in God's image. And God is a storyteller. He tells stories, but his story is called reality. And so what we do is when we tell stories, we riff on that. There is no giant monster storming Manhattan. It was a device to move the love story along, the, the most important part. But the, again, we've got that foreshadowing, and then we see the, the uh, resolution at the end. What we're going to see this morning in the story of David is it is kind of like that. It is a bit of foreshadowing that's going to show up at the end. Now, there's no giant monster here. There was in chapter 17, and we killed him. He's called Goliath. But that's not the point. The point is that this foreshadow is something that's going to come later. And so that, that's what's, what we're going to be watching for. What we're seeing here is um, the defending of the kingdom is what's going on. So let's take a look. It starts with the story of Jonathan again. Um, Saul spoke to Jonathan and his servants and said, let's kill David. So where we're at in the story is chapter 17, David and Goliath, that's David's big premiere. He steps onto the stage. He is the hero of the moment. He has defeated Israel's enemy. Chapter 18, what we see is that reaction to David. You see three, four different types of reactions. There's, there's Jonathan who loves him. There's Saul who fears and hates him. There's Michael who kind of loves him for a while anyway. And then there are people who just see him as, you know, helpful. He's, he's the king we wanted, so that's kind of cool, but there's no real connection to him. And that's what we saw last week. So what we're doing this week is we're taking that story forward. Saul still hates David. He's still terrified of him. And so he says to his servants, let's go kill him. Now, what's going on with Saul? Remember when God rejected Saul, he said, he has found a man after his own heart one of your neighbors who's better than you. So that's ringing in Saul's ears. He's, there's somebody who's going to take my place. He's a man after God's own heart. He's better than me. 
So if he looks at Jonathan, Jonathan fits the bill, doesn't he? Jonathan seems to be a man after God's own heart. When he went and fought the Philistines, he said, hey, God can defeat the Philistines with many or with few. He can deliver with however many. Let's go attack the Philistines. He's focused on God. He's better than, than Saul. He's the one who's gone out and fought the battles. But Saul doesn't need to be afraid of him because Jonathan's in a position to inherit the kingdom. So then when he looks a little farther, well, who else is a man after God's own heart who's better than him? David. As, as we're going to see in a little bit, David is going to show up and he's going to be playing a harp for, for Saul to calm him down, to soothe him. What do you think he was doing? Just sing, I think he might have been singing too, trying to calm him down. What would David sing? What kind of things do we have in Scripture that would tell us what David would sing? How about the entire book of Psalms? <laughs> so as, as Saul is looking at David, he's seeing this man is really consumed with God. For Saul, God is a thing to be used, a commodity. He's kind of politically expedient. But for David, this is real. And then every single time David is sent out in battle, he succeeds, wildly succeeds. So when Saul looks at him, he's terrified. This is the guy. He's going he's gonna to take my place. This is the guy that God said was going was to rise up and take my place. And so the beginning of this chapter, Saul speaks to Jonathan and his servants and says that they should kill David. We've got to get rid of this usurper to the throne. This, this is important. Jonathan's response is amazing. What he says is, he goes and he warns David, look, Saul is trying to kill you. Go hide until I sort things out. So David runs and hides. Saul, or, uh, Jonathan comes and talks to his dad, and, and he pleads with his father, what has David ever done to you? Why would you sin against him by killing him? He's never done anything bad for you. He's only done good for you. Don't sin against innocent blood. That's a religious term. That's something that, that's brought up in, the, in uh, Deuteronomy about sinning against innocent blood. And so he's pleading with his father, don't do this. And so Saul's heartbroken. He says, okay, he won't die yet for now, it, for you know, at least a couple of verses anyway. And so what happens is Jonathan then goes and gets David and reintroduces him to his father and he's back in his courts. Everything is great. It, it's back the way it used to be. Um, and then in verse 8, there's war again. So this story is moving at a pretty good clip. It's, it's not like this all happened in one afternoon. There's war again, and David goes out and fights the battle, and, and he winds up uh, attacking the, the Philistines and striking them with a great blow and putting them to rout, and everything's wonderful. You would think Saul would be happy at this point. My kingdom is, is thriving. My military generals, man, they're, they're tearing it up. This is great. But instead, that evil spirit, that troubling spirit, that, that spirit that came and terrified Saul comes upon him again. And so Saul's mental state, he's, he's in anguish again. He's all, all churned up. He's, he's scared. And so when he's frightened, what is he frightened of? That young man playing the harp in front of him. That's what scares him the most, because that young man playing the harp is the one who's going to take my kingdom. And so it says he had his spear in his hand and he tried to pin him to the wall. Now he may have thrown it as he did before, but it could be also that he thrust at him. And that's how David was able to get by as he saw Saul coming and he jumped out and ran. But it's just such a striking contrast between the two. Saul has always got his spear in his hand. What's David got in his hand? A liar. He's playing, he's playing music. He is a different type of person. And so he takes off and he hides. Where he goes is, this is kind of surprising to me, he goes home. <laughs> He's fleeing from the king and he goes home. And uh, Saul's no idiot. And so he sends messengers to David's house and he says, you keep an eye on him. 
And in the morning, I want you to kill him. And so now we see Michael defend David. And Michael, don't forget, is Saul's daughter. Jonathan's Saul's son. Michael is Saul's daughter. And so what does she do? Well, she says um, she hears word that, that Saul is sending men after him, probably because she's connected with the family. She's still got people involved in the court. And they come back and they say, hey, um, your dad sent people to your house to kill your husband. And so she lets David down through the window, verse 12 says, and he fled away and escaped. So he lived in a second story, maybe lived on a wall, something like that, but he, he was let down and he escaped. From this point on, we're going to see David on the run. He, he's not going to settle again. He's going to continue to be on the red for the rest of the book until Saul dies. But Michael is the one who lets him down. And then verse 13 says, Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. Um, we got to deal with this a little bit. The word for image is teraphim. And what teraphim means is household gods. It's translated idolatry or idols in other places. So the question is, why on earth does David and Michael, why do they have a teraphim in their house? What are they doing? Well, we don't know because it's just mentioned in passing, but there are some things that we can kind of bring together and kind of look at this. First of all, Psalm 59 is written in response to this. So if you go and read Psalm 59, that's David's response to this, this event. And what we see in Psalm 59 is David is not saying, uh, Lord, would you use the teraphim to deliver me? He's only calling on Yahweh. He's only calling on his God. So David is not attached to this thing as some sort of God. He, he's calling on the true and the living God. So then why would he permit a false God in his house? Maybe it's Michael's God that she's worshiping. But look what Michael does with it. She doesn't treat it. She doesn't set it up next to his bed and say, oh, great teraphim, would you protect my husband from, from evil men? She treats it like an object. She picks it up and chucks it in the bed. It's a toy. So I don't think she's worshiping it either. So then again, why is it there? Well, I don't know, but possibly that might be loot that David got when he put the, the Philistines around. Maybe this thing's coated in gold or silver or got precious jewels in it or something. Some reason they have it in the house. So you, maybe you can think of somebody that you know that is very, very secular, not religious whatsoever, doesn't believe in God or prayer or any of that, and they have a really cool looking Buddha in their backyard just because it looks cool. Maybe that's what's going on is they have it more as a decoration than something to be worshiped. Um, but whatever it is, for whatever reason, she takes it, lays it in the bed, puts goat's hair at the top of it, covers it in some clothes, and puts blankets on it. David's fled. He's out the window, and he's gone. And so when the bad guys show up, they say, where's David? Well, he's sick. And they look, and they see a body in the bed. Yeah, I guess he's sick. So they go back and tell Saul. Saul's response is, I don't care. Bring the entire stinking bed here, and I'll kill him myself. So when they go and they pick up the bed, what they find is, oh, wait, this is an idol. And so Michael then is called into her father's court, and Mike, uh, um, he says, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he's escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? In other words, if you don't let me go, I'm going to kill you. That's kind of a Hebrew way of saying that. So she, she delivers David by deceit. So David's escaped, and he runs. Where does he go? He goes to Samuel. He's only met Samuel, as far as we know, once when he anointed him king. So for the man who wrote the Psalms, who is a man after God's own heart, where do you flee to? You flee to God. 
And Samuel is the prophet who's been speaking on God's behalf. So that's where David goes, goes to meet him at Ramah. And so when they get there, he, he and Samuel, it says in, in uh, verse 18, went and lived at Nioth. And we don't have any idea where Nioth is. It's possible that that word means dwellings. So they might be living in the dwellings at Ramah, like there's maybe a camp or something near that. Um, doesn't really matter. I just thought it was kind of an interesting uh, word, Naoth. It's fun to say, so I wanted to say it. So they go there, and that's where they're hanging out. And then Saul hears, word gets back to Saul, uh, uh, David and Samuel are at Naoth in Ramah. And so Saul's like, great, we got him. And he sends some troops, go kill David. So they get there, and here's a company of prophets. We've heard that before, haven't we, with, in conjunction with Saul? After Saul was anointed, he went, and as soon as he got to the prophets, he started prophesying. So these troops do the same thing. They get there, they run into the prophets. Here's a company of prophets. Samuel is leading them, and they all start prophesying. And so word gets back to Saul, hey, it didn't work. Okay, send more troops. Does it again and again, and they all keep prophesying. So Saul finally gets to the point, you know, if you want something done right in this kingdom, you got to do it yourself. I'm going to go take care of this myself. So he gets there. He gets to Ram and he says, where are Samuel and David? They're at Naoth. And the spirit of God rushes upon him and he begins to prophesy. And when he gets to Naoth, he lays down, takes his clothes off and lays naked all day and all night. And then the the chapter ends with the statement, uh, is is, uh, Saul also among the prophets? So what's going on there? Well, this issue of prophecy is, is a tricky one in the scriptures. When Samuel has prophesied, what did that look like? Was it ecstatic utterances, him speaking nonsense and just gibberish or singing psalms or anything? When he was a little boy in the temple, God came to him and called him, Samuel, go tell Eli this. And he comes and he, he speaks to Eli. When, when it's time to anoint um, Saul as king, he says, Samuel, go do this. And he goes and does it. Samuel, it's time to take Saul out. Go tell him this. So that was very orderly. It wasn't this ecstatic, he can't do anything kind of thing. But with these guys, even with Saul previously, it looks like there's something very different happening when they prophesy. So I think one of the things you can learn from this is we've got to take that idea of prophecy in the scriptures, if we take it as a whole, to be nuanced. There are different ways in which people could prophesy. So if you read through Isaiah, Isaiah speaks, thus saith the Lord, and he talks. What happens with Ezekiel. Ezekiel lays on his side for 40 days, besieging a frying pan. And that's prophecy. So it looks different in different ways. So what's happening here, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what's going on. But whatever it was, it incapacitated the troops. They were unable to fulfill their mission. Go kill David, they can't. They're overwhelmed with the power of the Spirit, and they're doing prophecy, whatever that is. So when Saul shows up, the author is very careful. He doesn't introduce this idea of taking off his clothes and laying naked all night until we get to Saul. But it says he too. So apparently the other ones did that, whatever that was. By the way, you don't have to take your clothes off to prophesy. Um, Just just to be clear, this is, you know, one of the, this is, I think, the only place in the scripture that they do that. Um, You don't have to take off your clothes. That's, That's not part of what biblical prophecy is. It is in this case. But the author mentions it only with Saul. And why? I think he's calling us to this theme. 
Remember what happened in the last chapter when Jonathan met David. His heart was knit to him. He loved him. He took off his robe. He took off his armor. He gave him his, his sword. He gave him his bow. Jonathan willingly transferred his royal accoutrements, his, his garments, to David, recognizing in a way, maybe he didn't understand it at the time, but recognizing in a way, David is king. He, he's transferring the, the inheritance that he has to his friend. Saul is not going to do it. He's not going to transfer those, those signs of royalty unless he's forced to. And so the Holy Spirit has to come upon him and force him to do this. That's the only way that, the, that that's going to happen. So here's, here's what all of this is. This is where I want to go back to that foreshadowing idea. So this is the beginning of David's time on the lamb. He's, he's going to be running for the rest of this. This is the, really the beginning of the story of David because most of the rest of the story is him, him just trying to stay alive for a while. It's a foreshadow of the kingdom. David is the actual, real, anointed, God-chosen king of Israel. That, that's his position. That's the role that he has. But he can't assume the throne yet. He can't reign over Israel just yet because God hasn't taken out the, the false king. It's foreshadowing. Look forward to what Jesus does. Jesus comes as a servant, as a humble man, preaching the gospel, healing people. Obviously, he has God's favor. He is obviously the king of Israel, and his opponents hate it, and they use that as an excuse to get him killed. So he is kind of not really on the lamb, but, but during his three years of ministry, he's constantly moving. There's a couple of times where they tried to stone him or throw him off a cliff, and he keeps eluding him and keeps eluding him. He's now ascended, and he's on the throne. So what's going on in this time now is, what is your response to King Jesus, to the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. So look again at Jonathan. Jonathan, that story, if you go back and read it, pay attention to how many times he says, my father or his son. It comes up repeatedly. It's not just Jonathan. It's Jonathan, Saul's son. It's not just the king. It's Saul, my father, the king. It comes up over and over and over again. The author is really stressing in that section, this is a father and a son. And what's, Saul's or what's Jonathan's response? He comes to Saul and he says, you're trying to kill a righteous and a good man. Jonathan's got a heart after God's own heart as well. And he says, that's wrong, dad. You, you can't do that. His passion, his, his desire, his concern is not just for David. It's also for Saul. Don't be guilty of innocent blood. So he's saying, you can't kill people. You've got to protect David, and I don't want you to be guilty yourself. Dad, stop, please. He speaks the truth to him in love, and it works. Saul says, okay, I won't kill him until, you know, maybe three weeks from now, and then I'll do it again. Look at Michael's response. Michael is Saul's daughter as well. How does she respond? If Jonathan's responded in a kind of a kingdom way, speaking the truth in love, Michael's response is deceit. She lies. She lied to the men who came to arrest him. She lied to her father. She lied by putting a, 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 a dummy in the bed instead of David. She was deceitful, and it worked. That does not justify what she did. That doesn't say then we can lie and, and cheat and steal whenever we want to. What it says is God's going to protect his king, even through broken, faulty, wicked people. This is why I said with, with um, Michael, at first she loved David. 
And now you see, maybe her heart's not exactly right. Next time we see her at the end of the book, or in, I think it's in, uh, yeah, it's, sort of, it's in Second Kings. Next time we see her, she's going to despise him. So she, she wasn't fully set on him. She doesn't have a kingdom heart. She's not a person after God's own heart. But when all of those things fail and Saul is determined to go and get him, what happens next? God intervenes. God steps in and says, no, you're not going to do it. God could have done this in any number of ways. He could have slayed them on the way. Saul could have met a lion on the road on the way there. He could have met a giant angel who took his head off with a sword. He could have done it any number of ways. But what he chose to do was to let his opponents come and stand before David and fall down and prophesy, to be laid naked before him. It wasn't so much for his opponents, it was for David. David needed to understand, this is God who's defending you. This is God who's leading these things. This is God who's taking you these ways. So what are we supposed to do with this? Where, are we, where do we go with this? Well, first of all, it's the two people who defend David are Saul's children. And Jesus himself said, do you think I came to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, two against three and three against two. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The deciding factor, the, the, the question there is the king. That's what's going to divide these people up. That's what's going to set these households on edge is the response to who Jesus is. And that's what's happening here is this response to who is David? What is he doing? David is the king. And now you see this division happening in, in Saul's own house. This is foreshadowing the real king. This is that picture that comes later. And when Jesus comes, we see it in its fullness. So what happens when we look at the individuals and their responses? Jonathan had the great response, didn't he? He, he had the right response. When you preach the gospel to somebody, it's possible to go and be angry at them. Don't you know, you sinner? And, and to be really angry with them and come across as a bitter, angry person. What if you came to somebody and you preached the gospel and said, I have genuine concern for your soul. I'm really worried about you. I don't want you to be guilty. I want you to be set free. You're being jealous for the kingdom. You want this person in the kingdom and you're caring for the person you're witnessing to. That's a Jonathan approach. Dad, I don't want you to be guilty of sin. That's, that's a better approach than what Michael did. Michael lied. And then when time came, she threw David under the bus. He threatened to kill me. That's not ideal. Here's the great news, folks. God sorted it out anyway. In the end, who defended David? The Holy Spirit did. So whatever your approach is, whatever your method is, whenever you're coming to tell somebody, to share with somebody the gospel of the kingdom, when you're going to defend the kingdom, Hopefully do it with pure motives, desire for them, love for them. If some bitterness sneaks in, it's okay. God will redeem it because ultimately who's saving is the Holy Spirit. That's the one who's delivering. That's who's going to propel the kingdom forward. So how do we proclaim the kingdom? You should do it with a concern for the kingdom, but also for the one who's opposing it. And then even if you don't, don't worry about it. It'll still, God can still use it. And to recognize, ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit doing this. This is the work of the Spirit. This is how God is going to move his kingdom forward. So Jesus currently has ascended to the right hand of the throne of glory. He is reigning over the nations. 
but he's doing it primarily and chiefly through his spirit in his church as the kingdom is preached. This is the parable of the uh, woman who put a little bit of yeast in a clump of dough and how it just silently and slowly spread until it permeated the entire loaf. Or the, the, king, the um, mustard seed, this tiny little black seed that you put in the ground and slowly grows and suddenly birds are nesting in it. That's the nature of the kingdom. That's where we're at now. That's why I began with praying for the church. Don't be afraid, little church. Jesus is not not in control. We, we can continue to use the means that he's given us to propel the kingdom forward, even in the opposition of Saul, the illegitimate king, or as the New Testament says it in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world. And that's a lowercase g. The God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. And in the face of that king, in the face of that God, we have been given tools we can succeed with. We can preach the gospel. We can bring the gospel forward by the means that we've been given, knowing that we're relying on the Holy Spirit. We're trusting him to deliver. Lord, would you lead us through this? Ultimately, we have this great promise. The kingdom won't fail. There's a day coming when Jesus will return and he will rule and reign on this, king, on this earth. And so what our mission in the meantime is, is call as many people into that kingdom as possible. Bring them in, in, in however you can do it. Do the best you can and bring them in because that king is coming. So this is that, that foreshadowing that you see in David. And it's probably how we're going to see David going through this a lot is we're going to see it as a foreshadow to the coming of Christ and what Christ is going to do. But the good news is this is nothing new. What we're, doing, what we're experiencing right now, this is nothing new. This is nothing outrageous. This is how God has operated for a very long time. And he's going to continue to operate that way until the appointed day when Christ returns in glory. Let's pray.